Reflections on the Bible by Gil Bailey Narrated by Gil Bailey and produced by the Cornerstone Forum Part 3 Let me ask you to imagine this thing that we've been talking about spatially here for a second. And uh, just to use, even though they seem a little artificial and kind of conjured, these uh, the terms that Girard uses for an- analyzing the kind of constructs that lead to human victimization. He talks about mimetic desire, mimetic rivalry, mimetic violence. And then, in a sense, he trails off. Uh, he talks about maybe uh, myth, mystification, cover-up, concealment. So what I'd like to ask you to imagine is a, is a vortex, like a, a funnel. And on the outside edges of it, what you could recognize the human uh, interaction as being mimetic desire. And as it swirls into the vortex, that mimetic desire gives rise to an inevitable mimetic rivalry. Imita- mimetic meaning imitative. We begin to be, we imitate each other in our desire. Don't, you don't have to tell that to Madison Avenue. We learn what the desire from what others desire. But because we have learned our desire from their desire, we find ourselves in competition with them for something that's in scarce supply, mimetic rivalry. And the more we become rivals, the more we, our interest in the object, the original object of our desire wanes, and we become fascinated with each other, with our rival. And so that begins to build a lot of tension. And then finally, mimetic violence. However difficult it might be to avoid mimetic desire or mimetic rivalry, Think how difficult it is to avoid responding to violence other than with violence. In other words, violence is profoundly mimetic. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. So it gets more and more compulsive as this system drags down into its vortex. So much so that at the pit of that vortex, things happen that we never hear about, never learn about. It's as though you enter a black hole The gravitational field uh, that surrounds the actual event of victimization is so profound that no light escapes. We we hear nothing of it. And that's why the Hebrew literature is so unique, because suddenly we begin to hear something of it. For instance, in this short story, Flannery O'Connor's short story I referred to earlier, there is a sacrificial event. Finally, the Polish man is victimized by the people that have been living on this little farm. But as the victimization is about to occur, Mrs. McIntyre is walking out to the, to the shed where the Polish man is working on the tractor, working underneath the tractor. And as she walks out to the shed, Flannery O'Connor adds this sentence, the countryside seemed to be receding from the little circle of noise around the shed. Now, I want you to just feel the insulation that is being provided for the sacrificial event. Everything recedes. None of those who participate in it will be willing or able to speak a truth about it other than the one that the myth tells, which is that he had to be killed or it was an accident. So that we don't get any word out. You see, in general, if we look on the terrible edge of that vortex and we have the Tenth Commandment telling us not to take a step into it, Thou shalt not covet. Don't step on that merry-go-round because (laughs) sacrificial victimization. 
We don't believe it. Gerard's trying to convince us. The Bible's been saying it for 3,000 years. We're there, and we look down into where that vortex becomes sacrificial, and we say, I hear nothing. I see nothing. Nothing's coming out of it. I see no evidence. And then you open the Bible, and you say, I thought this was supposed to be a holy book. And you get this other little voice coming up out of that vortex. Who would be speaking the voice? In the sacrificial episode, who would be the one that would say the truth of the scene? Everybody else has been drawn into it in this elaborate way. And they understand all of this until they finally get to this point where their own agitations and the intensity of the conflict has led them to accept the Caiaphas principle, which is that it's better that one should die than that the whole nation should be destroyed. And everybody has come to the, such a place of distraction that they actually believe that. And so the victimization occurs, it doesn't get registered or it gets mythologized. Now, where would the voice come from that would see it for what it is? Who's the most likely person not to buy into that myth? The victim. So if we were to hear the voice or, you know, see something come out of that vortex, it's most likely to be the victim. On the other hand, the cultic system needs to get the victim to agree with the victimizing rationalization. And that's why, even in our day, murderous totalitarian systems have public confessions, show trials, and public executions. Because it's very important to get the victim to agree with the myth. Because that way you can ensure that no voice will come out. So we say, if there's a voice, it'll be the victim. But all of the impulse in, in terms of the sacrificial cult will be to get the victim to buy into it so that no voice will come in. So I'm building a little story here. How exciting it would be in human anthropology. We collectively, let's imagine, we've been standing at the vortex with our Moses-like understanding of how terrible that thing is. And we've been leaning over, hoping for 10,000 years that something would come up out of that to tell us what happens down there. And there comes a day when a voice comes out. And you think, oh my God, things are changing. And the voice is the voice of the psalmist. One of the most dramatic things in the Old Testament is the psalmist. There are 150 psalms, and I don't know, maybe a third of them are what the exegetes call the psalms of lament. And most of those are appealing to Yahweh because of a murderous horde that is surrounding the psalmist. And the voice of the psalmist comes out of that vortex and says, Yahweh, save me from this murderous horde. I could quote a bunch of them. I brought a number. Uh, but let me just quote one that's the most familiar to us because the evangelists, now let's remember just for a second here, the Gospels, you know, were written somewhere between 30 and 50 years after the death of Jesus or more. And they are written not in a, as an attempt to tell the story of Jesus' life, but to tell the meaning of Jesus. And because this whole thing was a Jewish experience, it was the Jewish scriptures that they called upon to interpret the event. So the Christians found in the Jewish scriptures those things which would echo what they had experienced uh, in watching Jesus' execution. And one of the most central of these texts is Psalm 22. So I'll read a little bit of Psalm 22 and then go and read Psalm 69. But these are echoes of other psalms very much like them. Psalm 22. 
My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? How far from saving me? The words I groan. I call all day, my God, but you never answer. All night long I call and cannot rest. Yet, Holy One, you make your home in the praises of Israel. In you our fathers put their trust. They trusted and you rescued them. They called to you for help, and they were saved. They never trusted you in vain. Yet here I am, now more worm than man, scorn of mankind, jest of the people, all who see me jeer at me. They toss their heads and sneer. He relied on Yahweh. Let Yahweh save him. If Yahweh is his friend, let him rescue him. Do not stand aside. Trouble is near. I have no one to help me. Unanimity minus one. I have no one to help me. A herd of bulls surrounds me. Strong bulls of Bashan close in on me. Their jaws are agape for me, like lions tearing and roaring. A pack of dogs surrounds me. A gang of villains closes in. They tie me hand and foot and leave me lying in the dust of death. I can count every one of my bones, and there they glare at me, gloating. They divide my garments among them and cast lot for my clothes. So a voice comes up out of that, the voice of the victim who sees what's going on, doesn't understand it. It's the earliest form of recognition. It goes against everything this pious Jew has ever known about how God always saves the ones who are pious and good. It's going to shatter that whole premise. He can't understand it. He's calling out, why have you forsaken me? Psalm 69. Save me, God. The water is already up to my neck. I am sinking in the deepest swamp. There is no foothold. I have stepped into deep water, and the waves are washing over me. Worn out with calling, my throat is hoarse. My eyes are strained, looking for my God. More people hate me for no reason. It's important that he makes that. No reason. Then I have hairs on my head. More are groundlessly hostile. And I have hair to show. It is for you I am putting up with insults that cover me with shame and make me a stranger to my brothers, an alien to my mother's other sons. Not even the family. Everybody is against him. I want to interpret this in a certain way. Pull me out of this swamp. Let me sink no further. Let me escape those who hate me. Save me from the deep water. Do not let the waves wash over me. Do not let the deep swallow me, or the pit close its mouth on me. Now, I tell you how I interpret that passage. Not so much the actual violence itself, but the mythology that justifies it. It seems to me, and, and this is just a personal way of interpreting that text. I have no exegetical reasons for interpreting it that way. But it seems to me, he, when he talks about the sinking in this quicksand, and the water is already up to his neck, it's, it's as though he's popped his head outside the sacrificial myth long enough, as victim of it, long enough to see what it is that's happening. But he feels himself being drawn back into the myth itself. Remember Job? Job is suffering, and his friends come to him, and they say, let's face it, Job, you did something wrong. And he said, well, I don't think I did. You did something wrong. You just had to look at it a little closer. He said, well, I'd he feels like, well, maybe, you know, maybe they're right. Maybe I, I do have to be sacrificed. 
the psalmist of Psalm 69 feels like he's being drawn back down in the illusion. And he wants God to come before he's lost in the myth. He says, I found no one to console me. So that's a great moment when finally a voice comes out of that vortex. It happens in these scriptures. It's not a voice that's romanticizing. It's not a voice that's talking about how, we, how brave he is or how it had to be done or how anything. It's a voice that's saying, get us out of this. Let me out of this. Save me from this. It's a cry of truth coming up out of that. Now, I want to go talk about the prophets because they articulate that same voice much more profoundly. If the psalmist, you know, has his head out like this, well, the prophets have come out and they're raging and ranting about it. So I want to turn to the prophets and spend a little more time, and there's not much time this afternoon. But before I do, I just want to go back now and pick up the, where we left off this morning with the sacrificial cult. The Hebrew people, as they began this faltering one step forward, two steps back, it seemed like, attempt to go in a different direction, to live in such a way that it would be possible at least, remotely possible at least, to on occasion live in the love of God. They've launched in that direction. And the two compromises, in a way compromise, that maybe that's being condescending, but the two, the two cultural devices that they've relied upon to avoid human victimization. At the moment of human victimization, the myth is so profound that they would be washed back into it, as we saw in those terrible stories we read. They must have tried to avoid human victimization. They had two essential ways of trying to avoid it. One was prohibitions. At the best, the prohibitions were the, the Decalogue in Exodus 20. Thou shalt not lie, steal, murder, covet, love the Lord your God, no false images. All of the kind of things that would avoid drifting in the sacrificial direction. So they had the prohibitions. They also had, well, there was another group of prohibitions, which were prohibitions that had to do with the sacrificial cult. Don't light your censer from that fire. When you enter the temple, you do this. And when you go home, you wash like this. And when you take certain food, you do this. And certain other food, you do that. And all of those things, which are related to the other central premise. One, one of their ways of avoiding it was prohibitions. And the other way was animal sacrifice, a cult of animal sacrifice. It was a way of having a bloodletting, but not a human bloodletting. Liturgically enhanced so that it would have as much of the, of the cathartic effect of a human sacrifice, as close as they could come, without causing human sacrifice. With those two systems in place, they managed reasonably well to avoid human sacrifice because these are theological people. Their theology doesn't come out of their cerebellum. It, it comes out of their viscera. That's what makes the biblical tradition so wonderful. It's not Greek philosophers thinking about religion. It's these nomadic people feeling it in their bones. The proclamation is, beware of copying read mimicking, mimesis, all those other nations. Our nation is God's nation. We're doing it differently. We're not like them. Don't copy their ways. So you look over there, what are they doing? Well, they're setting up images, worshiping stone and wood. Don't do that. They're engaging in cult sacrifices. Don't do that. Don't do what they're doing. We know enough to know you can't do what they're doing. So in a sense, they had developed an immunity to pagan sacrificial systems liturgically or theologically expressed. They could spot a golden bull a mile away. See. 
Nah, no, we're not going to do that. We're not going to set up stone and worship it. We're not going to do any of that stuff. So they had an immunization to that that worked reasonably well. The problem is they came to the Jordan River and crossed it into the Promised Land. And they found out that it was already occupied. And so they entered into conflict with its occupant over real estate, which is the way of saying they entered history. Now, history, I would argue, now, I know the word is, I use it incautiously, to say the least. There is a dynamic of history. And the historical dynamic is simply another version of that vortex. It involves the nomadic desire. You've got the nice pasture, and I've got this rocky piece of ground over here. I believe my great-granddaddy had a deed to that. I can't find it, but I believe he did. See? And there you go. Nobody ever invaded another piece of property, practically, except under the conditions where he figured his great-granddaddy had a deed to it, if I can speak that way. History itself, whatever the object of desire is, history itself, the dynamic of history, is, is simply another version of the sacrificial cult. But it's one that has no theological pretensions. And so the priests, who were in charge of making sure that our theology was intact, didn't notice that they'd entered the sacrificial system by the back door. They were saying, well, I think we're still okay. You know, no, no human victims on our altars. Everything's fine right here. You look up, and there's massive slaughter going on, massive victimization going on. Awakens no moral misgivings. Perfectly okay. The war's over. We come back. We celebrate. We're a people again. Can't beat it. And we still have our little cult intact. So what I'm suggesting is when they get into history, they re-enter the human sacrificial environment without knowing it and participate in it with moral impunity until the prophets come along. That whole thing finally leads to a very melancholy moment in the history of Israel. It's the moment when the leaders of Israel come to Samuel, the prophet, and they say to him, give us a king like the other nations have. Which is a way of saying, we're doing pretty well here in history. At least we're willing to put another nickel in. We just need a king like the rest of them have. And you see, all the warnings had been, don't be like them. And so when that voice comes out, to Sam, they say to Samuel, give us a king like the other nations have. It's an admission of memory loss. And they enter history. Now, part of this involved another problem, which in a way goes, predates it, but uh, let me just express it as it applies here. The Hebrews understood that God was with them, that God was not arbitrary, uh, and they understood that if something good happened to them, it was because God wanted it to happen. If something bad happened to them, it was because God wanted it to happen. Because they could participate in massive bloodletting with, without a moral uh, revulsion, they regarded a, a military victory as a good thing. Well, since it was a good thing, God wanted it to happen. God gave it to them as a reward. And if they lost, it was God's punishment. Before long, that came to be, that developed into the understanding of God as the one who actually delivered the enemies into their hands. And then it was God who actually wiped them out. And before very long, you have God with blood running down his arm. And it starts out with this understanding that God's always with you. 
and it ends up with this picture of God with blood running down his arm. Because they didn't recognize the bloodletting as a terrible thing. They recognized it as a, as a victory, which was good. I'll, I'll throw in a little Martin Buber as we go along. won't hurt any of us. Always and everywhere in the history of religion, the fact that God is identified with success is the greatest obstacle to a steadfast religious life. In the biblical narrative of the Exodus and the, and the wanderings in the desert, this identification becomes particularly acute. Moses has to engage in a never-interrupted, never-despairing struggle against the stiff-neckedness of Israel, that is, against this permanent passion for success, which is part and parcel of this participation in history. We have to win. We have to win. And the more we understand our potential contribution to history, the more we understand we have to survive. And then we behave like survivalists. And you behave like survivalists, then you don't have anything to offer the world. So what if you survive? So it has that double whammy to it. We're important. We got something to say. Therefore, we better circle the wagons. Well, the wagon's supposed to be going someplace. They're not supposed to be circling someplace. So you circle the wagons because we're important, survive, and then you're just like everybody else. Nothing comes of it. Well, what are we supposed to do? Go out there and, and get fed to the lions? Well, I don't know. I don't know. As amazing as this voice of the psalmist, more amazing in a way, is the voice of the prophet. Because now the, the vortex that people are lost in, same vortex, but it's under the historical dispensation. It's the historical one. Its logic is airtight. We have to do it. And its logic is patently mimetic. We have to do it. Why do we have to? Because they're doing it. We have to build them. Because they're building them. We have to have them because they have them. We have to do it because they're doing it. Who can argue with them? I guess you're right. You see, everybody, we all say on our way to, to pay our taxes every year, I guess you're right. I guess so. So we have to do it. So then, is there a voice that's going to come up out of that that has somehow managed to stay awake under that narcotic? Could it happen? Could it happen today? <laughs> Could, occasionally. Could it happen 2,700 years ago? It happened. Amos. Amos says, the prophets are the strangest people in the world. And the voice of the prophet comes just, it's a stunning thing. It's, it reminds me of the Lauren Isley thing where he, he describes an immense journey where the flowering plants suddenly spread over the face of the earth quickly like that. It must have been a magnificent sight, he said. Suddenly there was color. Well, that's the way the prophets are. Suddenly there was this strange thing in Israel, a prophetic voice. And Amos, he says, I was no prophet, neither did I belong to any of the brotherhood of prophets. I was a shepherd. I looked after sycamores. But it was Yahweh who took me from the herding of the flock and said, Go prophesy to my people Israel. Amos is a tender of sycamores and a shepherd living in Tekoa, south of Jerusalem. And he has a call. That's what vocation means. He has a call. And God says, Go preach to Israel. And he says, he's telling this because when he gets there, he's in the southern kingdom of Judah and he goes to the northern kingdom of Israel. When he gets there, they say, Hey, you don't belong here. Get out of here. And he says, Well, I didn't come by my own behest. God sent me. He says, I'm a prophet, but I'm not a member of the Brotherhood of Prophets. The prophetic guilds were these crowds of people that would put themselves into a trance, would sort of gyrate into a trance, and they became the tea leaves for the culture. But it was a tea leaf operation. You understand what I'm saying? It was like a Delphic Oracle or something. They just worked themselves up into a frenzy, and then they would utter whatever happened, and it, somebody would interpret it. Amos said, I'm not one of those. God called me here, told me what to say. 
northern kingdom is there on top of the world, time of prosperity, military might, everything's going swimmingly, they look like they're in great shape, there's only one little problem, there's a growing gap between the rich and the poor. So he goes. Everybody is filing into the temple to self-congratulate. And Amos stands over to the side and uh, gets up on a something. And he, he starts behaving the way prophets had behaved before him. He starts railing away at the enemies of Israel. What's wrong with them? He talks about what's wrong with Damascus. The three crimes in the four of Damascus. That's the way of talking about their uncountable crimes. The three crimes in the four of Gaza and of Tyre and Phoenicia. And as he does this, people going into the temple think, hey, this guy's got something to say. Let's go listen to him. So they go over and they hear this and they realize how much better they are than all those people. And he goes on and on. A bigger crowd gathers and a bigger crowd gathers. And then finally he says, and for the three crimes and the four of Judah, southern kingdom, see, Jew Israelites, Hebrews, but southern kingdom, well, it's a little closer, but they say, well, yeah, they're apostates really to the true faith up here, you see. It's like Catholics and Protestants. Yeah, well, it's those guys. So he rails against those for a little while, and then he turns it on Israel, and he lets them have it for the smugness, the contempt for the poor, and the arrogance, and they want to run him out of town. I got excited about Amos and got into his story before I meant to. Let me go back and talk about the prophets generally just for a second. Here's a wonderful thing. Gerhard von Rath is, is, is one of the uh, great... Uh, interpreters of the prophets, a scholar about the prophets' work, he says, these men became individuals, persons. They could say I in a way never before heard in Israel. At the same time, it has become apparent that the I of which these men were allowed to become conscious was very different from our present-day conception of personality. Our present-day conception of personality is a mere ghost to the kind of personality these people had. They could say I in a different way because the I, the I that they spoke was an I that was grounded in the love of God. Maybe I'm skipping ahead a little bit, but it was grounded in the experience of a connection with their God. And that was how to stay immune to this vortex. The tides would sweep in or one of these gathering social events, and they would simply not be caught up in it because they had their roots in an experience of Yahweh. They were not living defined by the social environment. They had another deeper experience. To use a Buber term, they were dialogical beings. The I they spoke was, an, was a dialogical I, not, not a monological I, not an ego I, not an I that was part of the herd thing, but was an I that was dialogical. It was the I thou, the I in the I thou, which is uh, awesome compared to the I in the I it. Buber's biographer, Maurice Freeman, gave, pens one little sentence that's, I think, a wonderful thing, apropos of the prophets. He says, true uniqueness forbears just that comparison of oneself with others that individuality thrives on. True uniqueness forbears just that comparison of oneself with others that individuality thrives on. Individuality regards itself as unique if it can figure out some way not to be like everybody else. So it's constantly having to check out to see how, am I still unique? Let's see, is anybody wearing the same necktie I am? Is anybody, am I still doing something nobody else is doing? Oh, how exhausting that enterprise 
is. Now, we're supposed to be talking about from slavery to freedom. There's a sentence that leads from slavery to freedom. What are we slaves to? The social melodrama. The social melodrama give us and the social melodrama take us away. And we cower before it. And the prophets simply didn't. They just didn't. And supremely, Jesus didn't. I mean, Jesus' immunity to that is breathtaking. Oh, Martin Buber, in talking about the I-Thou. I-Thou is Martin Buber's way of talking about the connection with, the, with God, which also makes available the connection with each other. And he says in his important book, I and Thou, he says, it won't do you any good to make the I-Thou connection with the ultimate Thou of the universe. It won't do you any good. It'll only do one thing for you. It'll teach you how to meet others and to hold your ground when you meet them. Now you say, now why'd he say that? Hold your ground when you meet them. That seems like he's, he's on to something. It's what it is. He's on to something. We can't really meet each other unless we can hold our ground when we meet each other. It gives us an opportunity to really meet each other because we're grounded in something else. We can meet each other because we don't need, we all, we need each other, don't get me wrong, we need each other, but we don't need each other in that fear-ridden sense of what's he going to think or whatever. It'll teach you to meet others and hold your ground when you meet them. Well, that's right out of the prophets. They come out of another experience and they see through the myth. I want to quote three things. Abraham Heschel is a great Jewish religious person of our century, I think, and Gerhard von Rad, I already previously quoted about the prophets. I want to quote the two Heschel things and one von Rad thing just to give you a feel for these guys. We're talking about the sacrificial cult expressed via the historical myth. Heschel says, the prophets were the first men in history to regard a nation's reliance on force as evil. Von Rod says, what is new is the verdict which the prophets passed on history up to their own time, namely that it was one great failure and that at whatever page it was opened, it bore witness to Israel's refusal. So unlike the prohibitions in the animal sacrificial cult, which were trying to avoid the sacrificial enterprise in its theological manifestation, the prophets were trying to avoid it in its historical manifestation. They saw it there. The final quote from Abraham Heschel, this is what the prophets discovered. History is a nightmare. And it is an act of evil to accept the state of evil as either inevitable or final. There's a wonderful story. I love this story. In uh, First Kings, the story of Micaiah, one of the first prophets. But it, it just is a picture. It has everything in it. Here's how it goes. There was a lull of three years with no fighting between Aram and Israel. And after a while, you look over and you say, I think my great-granddaddy had a deed to them. <laughs> then in the third year, Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, paid a visit to the king of Israel. The king, now, you see, here's the thing. Israel and uh, Judah, southern kingdom, Israel, northern kingdom, they didn't get along together. In the New Testament, Herod and Pilate didn't get along together either. The head of the Jewish nation, the head of the, the Roman state in the area. When they agreed on the victimization of Jesus, they became friends. So the southern kingdom and northern kingdom, they didn't get along together, but they got together on this occasion, and they found they might have something in common. The king of Israel said to his officers, are you aware 
that Ramoth Gilead belongs to us, and yet we do nothing to wrest it from the king of Aram. See, great-granddaddy's deed or something. He said to Jehoshaphat, Will you come with me to fight at Ramoth Gilead? And Jehoshaphat answered the king of Israel, I am as ready as you, my men as your men, my horses as your horses. See the mimesis in that? Double dare you. Yes. Jehoshaphat, however, said to the king of Israel, First, please consult the word of Yahweh. So the king of Israel called the prophets together, about 400 of them. Now, the kind of voice that's the prophetic voice doesn't come out of a crowd of 400. Should I march to attack Ramoth Gilead, he asked, or should I refrain? March, they cried. Yahweh will deliver it into the power of the king. These are the ones who work up like that, see, and they're ready to prophesy. And, and they pick up on that, the feeling in the vortex. But Jehoshaphat said, Is there no other prophet of Yahweh here for us to consult? And the king of Israel answered Jehoshaphat, There is one more man through whom we can consult Yahweh, but I hate him because he has never has favorable prophecies for me, only unfavorable ones. <laughs> he is Micaiah, some, son of Imlah. Now, you know, the think tanks do no better than this, do they? I don't like this. Go get this other group over here to give me something. Accordingly, the king of Israel summoned one of the eunuchs and said, Bring Micaiah, son of Imlah, immediately. Now, the eunuch that goes gets him, he's got, he knows the scene. And he knows something about Micaiah, it seems. I want to set the scene. This is the vortex into which he's coming. Everything is congealed already. The king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, were both sitting on their thrones in full regalia at the threshing floor outside the gate of Samaria with all the prophets raving in front of them. Zedekiah, who's one of the leaders of the prophetic clan, Zedekiah had made himself iron horns. Yahweh says this, he said, with these I will gore the Arameans till you make an end of them. He's into it. And all the prophets prophesy the same. March to Ramoth Gilead, they said, and conquer. Yahweh will deliver it into the power of the king. The messenger who had gone to summon Micaiah, who just surprised that situation, said, here are all the prophets as one man speaking favorably to the king. Try to speak like one of them and foretell success. And you can imagine Micaiah, who's probably savvy about this whole thing. He's got, his face is like a blank wall. He's saying, oh my God, I got to go into that crowd. And maybe for a minute he gets caught up in it or else he's, he's tremendously sarcastic. Micaiah answered, as Yahweh lives, what Yahweh says to me, I will utter. When he came to the king, the king said, Micaiah, should we march to attack Ramoth Gilead or should we refrain? He answered, march and conquer. Yahweh will deliver it into the power of the king. But the king said, how often must I put you on oath to tell me nothing but the truth in the name of Yahweh? He senses. Now, either Micaiah is caught up momentarily in the vortex, which is a possibility, or he utters it with such, in such a flat way that even somebody in the middle of that vortex recognizes that he's being mocked. So the king says, I want you to tell me the truth. He's saying to him, look at this, Micaiah, look at this. We're talking about a 100% approval rating. We're talking about a Gallup poll like nobody has ever seen. We're talking about national unanimity. We're talking about the army. We're talking about everything being together. What do you see? And Micaiah said, I see all Israel 
scattered on the mountains like sheep without a shepherd. How do you see that? Doesn't look like that to us. They're in it, and he's not. That's what I see, is a bunch of sheep lost without a shepherd. Now, isn't that amazing? That's one of the most amazing stories in the Bible. And what's he get for his efforts? Zedekiah came up and struck Micaiah on the jaw. The king of Israel said, Seize Micaiah and hand him over to Ammon, governor of the city, and to Prince Joash, and say, These are the king's orders. Put this man in prison and feed him on nothing but bread and water until I come back safe and sound. And Micaiah said, If you come back safe and sound, Yahweh has not spoken through me. And of course he goes off in the slaughter. But what's he get for it? He becomes, momentarily, the scapegoat so that this other thing can continue to go on. This is the wonderful voice of the prophet. It could only come from someone who's grounded in God. That's the only explanation for that. If you ask me, there's no other explanation for that. The prophets not only condemned the national enterprise to the extent that it relied on sacrificial violence, but they also condemn the sacrificial cult. Take my word for it, there are hundreds of examples of this same thing in the prophetic writings. With what gift shall I come into Yahweh's presence and bow down before God on high? Shall I come with holocaust? A holocaust is a burnt offering that's allowed to be burned up completely so that everything goes to Yahweh. A, a communion offering is where you sacrifice it and you burn it, but you, then you share it with each other. Holocaust is a whole lot. Shall I come with holocaust, with calves one year old? Will he be pleased with rams by the thousand, with libations of oil in torrents? Must I give my firstborn for what I have done wrong, the fruit of my body for my own sin? He's talking about human sacrifice. He wouldn't be talking about it if it wasn't a problem. What is good has been explained to you, man, this is what Yahweh asks of you, only this, to act justly, to love tenderly, and to walk humbly with your Lord. That's a wonderful thing. And we think, well, these are primitives. These Hebrew people are primitives, see? This voice is coming up out of that. Yes, we had, yes in a way, the, the animal system, sacrificial system had to be used as a, as a methadone program for getting off the real thing. Finally, maybe that's how we had to see it. But let's, wait a second. It's become our central preoccupation. That's not what God that brought us out of Egypt wants. See, he wants us to live in the love of God. That's what it's all about. That's the promised land. That's what it's all about. In other words, we have something to teach the world. Our existence is not for ourselves. We're here to offer the world a model for how to do it other than the way they're doing it. And then we're not going to be able to do that if we start doing it the way they're doing it. The prophets say, if you don't watch out, you're going to end up where you're headed. You think you're special because God brought you up out of Egypt? The, the God who brought you up out of Egypt is, uh, is all the while bringing somebody up out of somewhere. He's bringing them all out of somewhere. And he, he lists it. I don't have it here in front of me. But he brings the Edom, Edomites up out of some swamp. He brings the Moabites out of another one. He's the God that's trying to liberate us, set us free. So don't let it go to your head. You're just onto it, and they're not. That's the only difference. And you're supposed to be a model for them. <clears throat> I'm going to lickety-split, get into Jeremiah, or else we're not going to have time for the New Testament. 
if we do Jeremiah right, we won't need to have time for the New Testament because Jeremiah is like a little dewdrop that has the New Testament in it, Jeremiah and second Isaiah. Jeremiah is living at a time of historical vacillation. Egypt is in the ascendancy. Uh, the Assyrians are in the ascendancy. G Egypt comes along and ascends. Babylonia uh, builds an empire. He, he's working. He's, his mission lasts for 45 years. And he saw the Babylonian exile come, and he went with the exiles into Babylon, where rumor has it, legend has it, that he was killed by his own people when he got there. He was not a favorite of his own people while he was still uh, in Judah. At the beginning of Jeremiah's prophetic life, the sacrificial cult is in a mess. It has become really a mirror image of all the Canaanite cults, including human sacrifice, all kinds of abominations. And there's a reform movement building in Israel, and Jeremiah's part of it. And finally, the reformer is this young king who uh, is in office for a long time with a kind of uh, uh, representative running things until he reaches maturity, Josiah. And Josiah reforms the, the, the uh, religious cult. And in the business, in the process of reforming the religious cult, he, quote, discovers a text in the temple. Now, either he discovers the text had been there for a long time, or the boys in the back room wrote it to, take, to help with the reform movement. But the text he discovered is, is the Deuteronomic text, Moses' last will and testament, which says this is how you should live, and so on. And he uses it to reform the religious cult. And it does reform in a way remarkably comparable to how Jeremiah would have had it reformed. So now you have a reformed cult. And Jeremiah, he's, he doesn't have to, it's not sort of like, remember Moses had, he goes out the next day and he finds out that his first impulse was naive. Uh, Jeremiah wakes up and he says, well, look here, now we've got a reformed cult and uh, things are worse than they were. And the reason they're worse than they were is because now we're smug in addition to all the other sins that we're still committing. Now we're sure that God's on our side. Before, there were a handful of religious, uh, uh, religiously pious people who didn't think he was anymore. But now everybody thinks he is. It's worse than it was. So he starts to say the outrageous thing, again, at the moment when the nation is self-congratulating. And they treated him the way you might expect somebody to be treated who has just interrupted the party. Having just reformed the cult, and uh, full of its now new-founded sense of historical purpose, Judah is at that time uh, about to take History 101 for credit. And here's Jeremiah over here trying to give them a graduate seminar in history. And they're sure they've got the answer to it. See? And he says, Yahweh says this, A curse on the man who puts his trust in man, who relies on things of flesh, whose heart turns from Yahweh, he is like a dry shrub in the wilderness. If good comes, he has no eyes for it, like the peacock's tail. He settles in the parched places of the wilderness, a salt land, uninhabited. A blessing on the man who puts his trust in Yahweh, with Yahweh for his hope. He is like a tree by the waterside that thrusts its roots to the stream. When the heat comes, it feels no alarm. Its foliage stays green. It has no worries in year of drought and never ceases to bear fruit. Now that's a wonderful image. See. Reinhold Niebuhr, the great Protestant theologian, said, Hope in the meaningfulness of human existence must be nourished by roots 
that go deeper than the deserts of history with their periodic droughts. So if our hope is a hope based on some little shallow thing, we hope Gorbachev will make it. It's perfectly okay to hope that Gorbachev will make it, you see. But if our hope is based on one of those kind of things, then it's a sitting duck. Jeremiah says, got to have this ground. Niebuhr says, got to have that other grounding. Another version of the same thing, Yahweh speaks, my people have committed a double crime. They have abandoned me, the fountain of living water, only to dig cisterns for themselves, leaky cisterns that hold no water. Cisterns have stagnant water. Here's the living stream right here. And we build these little things out of fear. Jeremiah goes on. It is not long now since you broke your yoke, burst your bonds, and said, I will not serve. Now, he could have said that to the 20th century Western civilization. Come on. Hey, I'm free of all that. And Jeremiah says, Yet now, on every high hill and under every spreading tree, you have lain down like a harlot. This proud boast, you're going to be your own guy, huh? Hey, I'm, I'm free of all that. I don't have to take anybody. I don't have to be part of some other thing, you know? And he says, you're when he says high hill, he's talking about sacrificial cults. The sacrificial cults were they're, they're the high places where these pagan cults developed and very often were uh, sacrificed human victims. So he says, you regard yourself as free of all that, and it's only a matter of time before you drift back over to where to that swamp that we've just come out of. And one of those sacrificial cults, the most famous of them, was at Ben-Hinnom, southwest of Jerusalem. It was a little high place where there was a sacrificial altar on which human victims were routinely, on and off over the centuries, offered. It was a notorious place of human victimization. And about Ben-Hinnom, Jeremiah says, he said, someday we will call that valley, not the valley of Ben-Hinnom, which is what we call it now, but the valley of slaughter. He says, someday we will no longer speak in euphemisms about what went on there. Someday we will have what it takes to say the truth. He could already see it. Someday that will happen. And then he says, look at your footprints in the valley. When you go into the valley, you get so caught up in it that the total amnesia sets in. So you come out of it, you don't even remember you were there. He said, go look at your footprints in the valley and acknowledge what you have done. See what he's arguing about? You go into that valley, a veil of mist closes around you, you come out, you won't even admit what you just did. You tell me all these little, these little myths about what went on there. 